Appreciate that singing. I picked that hymn because I like to hear men's voices, and uh, that tune has a lot of testosterone in it. I like that. And, uh, and I like the key we sang it in. You know, some, a lot of men think, and boys, think they can't sing because everything is keyed too high. And uh, you should, if you're not in this church, you should uh, ask your church to play your music in a lower key. Uh, our music uh, leaders here have told me that over the last hundred years, the American voice has dropped uh, a key, at least a key. And uh, just, with, um, just with getting bigger and eating lots of oily foods, I guess, whatever we do. But uh, we have, we're producing a new hymn book at this church, and all the, the hymns are at a lower key, and I've, I've asked us wherever we can to make it more singable for men and boys, you know. All, it, uh, all women can sing. It's, it's, it's a miracle when men sing. And so don't, <clears throat> don't make it even harder by putting it up there where uh, only the angels and the sopranos can sing it. Uh, so thank you for that singing. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 to 13 is our text this morning. And, and um, I've made the slides bigger, so uh, we're improving. And I've put uh, an, an, your outline on the table with some bigger blanks on it. But, you know, because I keep fussing with my lesson until the very end, I've changed some words in it already, so I don't know. You may still hate me by the end of it. But this is tough stuff. I just want to affirm you in that. This, this, uh, this book of Hebrews is a challenging study, but it's worth it. And uh, even early this morning, I was wrestling over this text, and I'm very excited about it. I hope I can convey it, the main point, to you. The big idea is this, is we've been studying <clears throat> about this better mediator that we have in Jesus Christ you know, we've been comparing and contrasting him to Melchizedek, who uh, God designed, remember, he designed him as an illustration of the kind of mediator we would have in Christ. We've been focusing on this better mediator we have. Today, we're going to focus on a better covenant, uh, the, and really, the only covenant of grace God has ever had, the only plan He's ever had. He's only had one plan, and that is to save us by grace. But He has demonstrated how preferable grace is through the redemptive history by showing us through redemptive history what doesn't work. So here's the main, the, uh, the main point of our lesson today, and that is the whole story of redemption is teaching man to rest in His grace. Or we can say it this way, because God is a good Father, He teaches us, forces us to learn to trust Him. And the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of redemption, is about God forcing us to live where we ought to be, the most humanizing place, the most freeing, the most liberating place, the originally intended place, He is forcing us to rest in Him alone. So that's the point that uh, the author is making here, and he makes it by, as, uh, in a technique that we have observed over and over again. He's comparing and contrasting, and the first contrast is 
the Mosaic Covenant. <clears throat> now, we're going to have the first main point is going to be the Mosaic Covenant. The second main point is going to be the Christ Covenant. But I want to start here with an, with an image that I think might help because sometimes these biblical, theological words get kind of all, all tangled up for us, especially a word like covenant, which is used different ways uh, to, uh, and, and has to be interpreted in the context. So I'm going to try something with you. I'm going to try this analogy and see if it helps. So Jerry, when you were praying for me to get up at 10 to 5 this morning, this is what I was thinking. Now, if it comes out wrong, it's your fault. Don't wake me up so early next time. But it's something like this. <clears throat> Let's think about a degree in college. Let's think about the degree my, my daughter is working on, who's going to be the subject of another illustration in a moment, but that she's working on a, a pre-med degree, all right? So you have a Bachelor of Science in, uh, what's hers going to be, uh, chemistry, Bachelor of Science in chemistry. So the dean of that college says, here is the plan. We've got this plan. We have this whole curriculum plan to get you to the degree called Bachelor of Science. And then we've got these courses along the way. You've got to take these courses. You've got to go through these courses. You've got to go through these courses with good teachers. You've got to go through these courses with bad teachers. You've got to go through hard courses. You've got to go through easy courses. But you've got to go through all these courses to get to this degree. And within each of those courses is a lesson plan. And those lesson plans have different goals to them within them. But they're all preparing you for this Bachelor of Science in Chemistry. Well, think of the covenant of grace, plan of salvation, salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the degree. God is moving us to that degree. And then there are all kinds of courses to go through to get us to that degree. And that's what the Bible is. A Bible is, the Bible is a collection of of the courses God has taken His people through, through the centuries, to teach them this one overarching idea, salvation is of me, not of you. And the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic period, all these laws and ceremonies and whatnot, sacrificial system, that was a course within the plan, a course intended to teach us you cannot be saved by works. You must only be saved by grace. Are you with me so far? All right. Well, let's dive in then to this first point called the Mosaic Covenant, or let's say the, the course of Moses. Verses 7 to 9. I haven't read the text yet, have I? Let's begin with verse 7. <clears throat> For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If that course of Moses had been the degree, then you would have graduated. With me? But we've got to look toward the rest of the courses that take us to the last degree, the final degree. For he finds fault with them when he says, and he quotes from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for the redundancy of your word, your word which constantly, never failingly points us to Jesus Christ alone. We thank you for the perseverance of your grace by which you you follow us and triumph over us and trip us up and put us on our faces and on our backsides, all that we might learn to trust Christ and Christ alone. So we pray, Lord, as we study an old text and a text that refers to even older text, and we enter into a mindset of religious Jews, would you help us by your Holy Spirit to see the big idea, the main point that you want us to get, that we might live more restfully in the grace of of our precious Savior, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So a good father teaches his children how to trust appropriately. That's what God is doing for us. Now this child that I said is working on a pre-med degree is uh, our smallest child, our oldest daughter, and our most intense and competitive one. So she's a twin. She's much smaller than the twin, uh, her other, her sister, which uh, we take it to mean that she had to fight for every scrap of food she had in in the womb, and she came out fighting, and she's been fighting ever since. And the Lord has channeled that fight in a good direction. She started walking when she was seven months. She started running when she was nine. And she fancied herself to be an Olympic diver when she was nine months old, too, though she couldn't swim. So we had this real problem, this real safety problem when we would get around a pool because she was faster than anybody else in the family, so she could run around the other side of the pool toward the deep end and plunge herself in. And so I would have to flail across the pool and grab her and rest. Well, she thought that was great fun. You know, so she'd go to the other end and do that, and it's great fun watching Dad uh, make a fool of himself, and then she would, everything worked out all right. I mean, she's always above the water. So I told Jackie, I said, either I'm going to die of a heart attack or she's going to drown. We've got, somehow we've got to teach her her limits for her own safety's sake. So I said, Jackie, you just turn the other way and let me try to handle this. So Anna got up to the edge of the pool, did that big grin, 
And she ran to the other side where I couldn't get her, and I let her go. She jumped into the deep end of the pool, and she sank like a rock. She sank all the way to the bottom. And I looked over like that, and she looked up like that, and then went, oh, oh and desperately needed help. I pulled her out. Now, it wasn't pleasant for me. Certainly wasn't pleasant for her, but it did the trick. She didn't jump into the water anymore unless I was there to catch her. The Heavenly Father is about one thing. He is training us. He is forcing us to trust in Christ alone. To have no trust in our works whatsoever, not to add anything to Christ, not to take anything away from Him. And the whole history of the world is about doing that one thing. When he says in Ephesians 3, I have created all things so that through the church I might reveal the mysteries of my grace. That shows us everything is about that. Well, let's talk about this first main point. The Mosaic Covenant, what's the point he's making in this first section, verses 7 through 9? He tells us three things, three things about this, this period of time under Moses. And uh, I know I have only two things under your first main point, but I added a third one this morning. Okay, so, <clears throat> so the first one you have there is republished, right? And the second one you have is defective, right? And the third one I want to put on there is intentional. Three things about this Mosaic Covenant. It's republished, and I have a better word than that now. It's a reenactment. It's a reenactment. The, the, the period of Moses was a reenactment of what God did with Adam in the garden. It's a reenactment of what God did with Adam in the garden. Now, what, what did he do with Adam? Remember I told you how short Adam's Bible was in the garden? It had three words in it. Do not eat. That's all he had. That was his Bible. Do not eat. You could fit it, you know, it fit in a fortune cookie. Do not eat. And he said, don't eat. You will live. If you don't do this, you will live. If you do eat, you will die. That's it. Obey, live, disobey, die. What did Adam do? Disobeyed, died. Not just disobeyed, but he said, you know, I can handle this. I can do this on my own. I believe this serpent, this serpent told me if I do this, I can be as God. I don't have to, I won't have to depend on him anymore. I can do this. He died. Now, in theology, we call that, that, <clears throat> that, um, that covenant, that agreement, that, that command before he fell. We call it the covenant of works. Now, that's a little fancy, but, there, but, but what it means is if you, a covenant of works is, uh, I'm going to make an agreement with you. If you do good works precisely, you will have eternal life. Just that simple. Do works just precisely, you will have eternal life. Adam blew it from the beginning. 
covenant of works didn't work for him. He disobeyed. He died. So what do I mean then that, and then what happened? He announced the coming of the Redeemer in Genesis chapter 3. God, God knew Adam was not going to succeed because God's intention from before the foundation of the world was to save through the lamb that would be slain. So when I say that the Mosaic period was a reenactment of what God did with Adam, here's what I mean. God had to teach his people again. You cannot be saved by works. So people, you know, tend to think, well, you know, just give me a, give, give me a few more instructions. Give me some more words. So he gives a few more words to Abraham. Leave your country and go to Canaan, you will live. Abraham gets about halfway and he stops. And then Abraham lies. And Abraham, Abraham breaks the covenant again. Abraham cannot save himself by his works. Well, give us a few more words. If we just had more, more words, if we just had a few more things to do, maybe, you know, some, some more achievable, more objective symbols of what we're supposed to do. Okay, here's the Mosaic covenant. Here are all the sacrifices. Here are the ceremonies and the rites and so forth. So I'm going to reenact what we tried to do in the garden. You do this, you will live. So do all of this, do all of this perfectly, precisely, without fault, do all of this and you will live forever. And what happened? Can't do it. So when I say it's a reenactment of the garden, that's what I mean. The result is always the same. When we try to earn our salvation by works, it never works. It never, ever works. It's the, the result is always the same. It's just like a, one of those military reenactments. You know, I have these crazy friends who go around and they, you know, pretend that they're back in some war at Yorktown or the, or a Civil War or something. Well, every time they do Yorktown, George Washington wins every single time. They may hold out hopes. This time Cornwallis is going to get the upper hand. But no, Washington wins every single time. They go to the Battle of Shiloh every single time. Grant takes the victory. That's good. The same, it's the same throughout redemptive history. God is proving over and over and over again, you cannot be saved by law. The letter kills. Grace alone saves. Reenactment, number one. Number two, I want to say that it's, he proves it was defective. Now, I'm going, to t I'm going to have you turn to one passage of Scripture. I don't like to run you all over the Bible, but I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Now, that's just to the left of Hebrews, so turn back just a few books. <clears throat> You'll see books like Colossians and Ephesians, and, but we're looking for Galatians, and that's chapter 3. So I want to start reading in verse 10. I'm going to come back up to verse 9. And I'm making this point that, that law-keeping, the idea that you can keep the law, do good works to get into heaven, that's defective, and God is proving that through history. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's the, that's the bottom line. Look, you're, the opposite of that would be, here, here's the way not to be cursed. Abide by everything written in the book, book of the law and do it. But nobody can do that. Nobody does that. So cursed is everyone because can't keep the law. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by his faith. You'll only live by receiving righteousness, the righteousness of Christ as a gift. Now, go back up to verses 8 and 9, all right? So, I've made, this is the third point I'm going to make, that it's intentional, that the Mosaic period was a reenactment of the garden. Number two, it's defective, and living by the law has always been defective. And number three, God intentionally takes His people through these periods to prove to them that they cannot keep the law, that they cannot save themselves. He, he is constantly causing us to stumble over our works righteousness feet to drive us to Christ. Here's the proof of it. Look at verse 7, Galatians chapter 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And the Scripture, you're not going to believe this is in the Bible, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed through Abraham with the man of faith. Do you realize that what was preached to Abraham, what Abraham was told, believe God, trust in me, and I will give you righteousness, and through you will come the Savior who will provide righteousness, God, in the Old Testament, preached the gospel to Abraham. The gospel is not something that just appears in the New Testament, not something that just appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel is the only story God has ever been telling. The good news that you're justified by faith alone, through, or by grace alone, through faith alone. So those three points, that God is <clears throat> reenacting in this period of Moses, Salvation is by grace alone. He's showing that salvation by law is defective. And three, it's all intentional. Now, I'm going to tell you that that, uh, that that is not easy stuff that we've just covered or in those verses. I can tell you denominations have split over these concepts that I've just talked about. Uh, I've known people who are fired from seminaries by uh, getting this part wrong. And uh, I poured over 200 pages worth of different views on this issue yesterday so that I could distill it for you into that, that, uh, those, those three points. So don't beat yourself up if you say, I'm reading, these, I'm reading this text and this is difficult. It is difficult. But it's worth it, isn't it? That, of, worth it of making that good point, that news, that salvation is by grace alone through 
faith alone. And that's the only story God has ever been telling. And all of his work with his people has been intending to show them, you can't do this on your own. And I will see to it that it is proven to you. Let me give you one more illustration maybe to clinch the nail on that before we leave this first major point of the Mosaic Covenant. I had a professor in college, and, uh, and he was an educational psychology professor. And um, he was a psychologist by training and an educator too. And he's teaching us uh, the degree is an education degree. And so you've got to take these courses, one of them being educational psychology, to get that degree. And that degree is to enable you to teach. That's the goal. So in this educational psychology course, he's wanting to teach us how, what, how people are made and how they learn and what are good methods and what are bad methods for teaching and for testing and so forth. So he, in the first uh, module of the course, he taught us the nature of people made in the image of God. And then he, he taught us the different learning styles that people have. Some people learn by walking around. Some people learn by sitting. Somebody, and, and then here are the different ways that testing can occur. And then he said, now we're going to have our first uh, unit test. And uh, in that test... He did everything wrong, everything contrary to what he had taught us is good. Nothing in the test came from the book that we read. He scheduled himself to be out of town that day so we couldn't ask him any clarifying questions. He had uh, uh, lots of only essay questions uh, that only measured a certain learning style. It was a complete disaster. So we were waiting for him when he got back, you know, ready to storm his office in him. And he said, uh, just tell me about your frustrations. What did you not like? I didn't like this. You treated me like dirt. You know, you're not here. And, and you, you only tested one kind of learning style. And, and you, you, you pulled the rug out from under us by telling us the test was going to be on something. And then it was on something else. He said, exactly. That was the point. That was the design. This portion of the course was designed to show you exactly how not to do it and to traumatize you with how it is wrong to do it this way so that you will never forget to do it the right way. That's what God is... Now, instead of hating that man, we grew to endeared to that man. He loved us that much to go through that. You know, sort of uncomfortable for him. We, we hated him for a whole day or more. And, um, but he was willing to endure that so that we got the main point. That's the Mosaic Covenant. We might say that is, that is the covenant of works strategy. Is to tell you this is what you must do and to demonstrate that you cannot do it in order to point you to Christ who will enable you to do it. That's the next major point. Let's see how many slides I ignored to get to that point. There's republished. He finds all the defective. He did not teach us how to use PowerPoint when I was in. Okay. All right. That should hold us for a while. So 
the next point, look at, uh, let's look at uh, verses 10 to 13. He's quoting now from Hebrews chapter, I mean, uh, from Jeremiah chapter 31. And uh, remember, we've already read, God preaches the gospel in the Old Testament, so we shouldn't be surprised to find Jeremiah, a prophet writing, what, four or five hundred years before Jesus is born, Jeremiah is describing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament too. And he says this is, good, this is what's going to characterize salvation in Christ. And uh, it's going to have these five characteristics. It's going to reconcile, it enables, it motivates, it forgives, and endures. Now, just in case I'm not clear, and just in case we haven't made the point, the Old Testament saint was saved by grace too. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Moses was saved by grace through faith. Those people who got into those ceremonies and so forth, and they said, I can't do this. And they heard by the Spirit, you're right, you can't do it. That's the point. They're saved by grace through faith. So he says, this is the characteristic of the new covenant or that covenant which is salvation by grace through faith. It, number one, is one that reconciles. It reconciles you to God, and it reconciles you to one another. How, look how that point is made in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, the Jew would have read that with, uh, you know, and being in all caps, in fluorescent colors, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, two seemingly Israel and Judah fighting against each other through the latter part of the Old Testament, constantly clashing, and God says, I've got a covenant in Christ that's so powerful, it can reconcile warring peoples, Israel and Judah. In the New Testament, Gentile and Jew. In our community, rich and poor. White and black. Hispanic. Asian. White station, East. Christian brothers. Who's their competition? Whatever. Yeah, MUS. Think of the most warring parties you know. Auburn, Alabama, that's beyond the pale. That's meddling. That's not preaching. It's this powerful. It's why it's called a mystery in Ephesians 2. It's a, it's a mystery. What is the mystery? That Gentiles and Jews will be reconciled and become one person. Why is it a mystery? Anything that can't be explained humanly, anything that can't be explained in this world is a mystery. So the only thing that can explain how previously unreconcilable groups of people can be reconciled and become one is a mystery. And why should it surprise us? If, it is, if the gospel is powerful enough to reconcile unholy sinful, rebellious people with a holy God, then why should we be surprised that it can reconcile 
families and socioeconomic differences and racial differences. This is the gospel. This is, this is the gospel. Number one, it reconciles. Just write down, we'll look at it, uh, you can look at it later. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, under that point, reconciles. Number two, it also enables, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, he's saying now that, that, um, that you have... You have seen these laws on the outside. You've seen the sign on the tree, do not eat. You've seen the sign on the temple, do not enter unless you're perfectly holy. You've seen the, the writings that these are, the, these are the, uh, the, the, the civil laws that you are to keep impeccably. They're, they've been on the outside. And, and when you are trying to spontaneously cause yourself to obey, it doesn't work. And so he, he runs us up against those, those laws and uh, we are unable to complete them. But when he saves us, when he causes us to despair of our own ability and believe, I say, I can only be righteous by receiving your gift of righteousness, what happens? Jesus moves inside of us and by his Spirit begins to live his life inside of us and spontaneously, internally, cause us to want to keep his law. We don't do it perfectly, but we do it more and more because Christ is growing up in us more and more. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will enable them, empower them to do what I have commanded. Now, write down here Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. You know the first part, for grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. But then the next verse is, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works He prepared for us in advance to do. We're saved by grace through faith that He gives us and we're enabled to do good works because He has prepared them for us to do, and He moves inside us and enables us to do them. Number three, it motivates us. The new covenant, the, the covenant of salvation in Christ, not only reconciles us to God and to one another, it enables us to keep the law, it also gives us a motivation, it, it gives us a want to, to obey. They shall not teach each one his neighbor's and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. They will, they will all now know that the word know in the Hebrew mind, yada in, old, in, the, in uh, Hebrew and gnosko in Greek was not just cognitive like we think. You know, do, you, do you know the presidents? Do you know the dates of the Civil War? You, you grasp those facts. It was deeper than that. It's intimate. It's, it's, uh, it's affective. It's emotional. It's, it's close. It's passionate. So the Bible says in Genesis, Adam knew Eve 
and she conceived and bore a child. This is intimate knowledge. And so he says, life with Christ means you will know the Lord. You will love Him. And because you love Him, because He's loved you first, He moves into you, He loves you from the inside out, you love Him, and that love for Him motivates you to obey Him. It's no longer, boy, if I don't obey Him, He's going to light me up. If I don't obey Him, He may do something bad to me. It is instead, He loves me. And because He loves me, I love Him. And I want to do whatever He tells me to do. Write this verse down, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Christ's love compels us. All right, number four. This covenant in Christ as opposed to the covenant of works forgives. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. One of the proofs of God's divinity is that He is able to forget. I'm not able to forget wrongs done to me, are you? I'm not able to forget other people's sins. I'm able to forget my own sins. God forgets. I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will bury them in the depths of the sea. I forgive iniquity. Now, if you're going to benefit from that forgiveness, you have to admit that you need it. The Bible says that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. We could say Jesus hangs out with, fellowships with, fraternizes with, only spends time with transgressors. If you're not a transgressor, you're not a doer of iniquity. If you're not sinner, not a sinner, if you're righteous, good for you, hope you're having a good time. But Jesus isn't with you. Jesus only hangs out with transgressors. That is, those who admit what is true. He makes that point powerfully in Luke chapter 7. We're running short on time, so I'll just uh, summarize it. Luke chapter 7 the beautiful story of the woman who comes into the fancy dinner party. Remember at Simon the Pharisee's house? At this fancy, Jesus at this fancy dinner party with Simon the Pharisee, and this woman comes in uninvited. She's a woman of ill repute, apparently. She's had a, uh, she was a prostitute in the past. She comes to, and, she, and she proves it. Uh, so, socially, they would say she proves it by letting her hair down. No self-respecting woman would let her hair down. She lets her hair down, and she, and she weeps over Jesus' feet, washes them with her tears, and dries, it with, dries her feet, his feet with her hair. And Simon, the Pharisee, this, this, this member of this Jewish religious sect that said, we're going to save ourselves by our good works, he says, uh, <clears throat> you know, if he had really been the prophet he said he is, he would have known what kind of woman this was. He wouldn't have let this happen. And Jesus, reading his mind and heart, said, let me tell you a story. There were two men who owed, one man owned, owed, um, one, one man was in debt to someone for a little bit of money, and somebody else was in debt to somebody for a whole lot of money. And uh, 
when they were both unable to pay, each one was forgiven. And Jesus asked Simon, which one appreciated the the forgiver more? And Simon said, well, I guess the one who'd been forgiven more. Well, that's not the right question, the right answer. The answer would be both of them should have because they were both unable to pay. You know, when you owe a hundred bucks, it doesn't matter if you owe a million bucks or a hundred bucks, if you're unable to pay the hundred bucks, you're just as desperate as the guy with owing the million bucks, unable to pay. And then Jesus said, okay, here's the point. Those who have been forgiven much, those who recognize they have been forgiven much, love much. And those who recognize they haven't been forgiven much at all, don't love much. It forgives. Final point is, it endures. This is the point. This is what God has always been doing and what God will always be doing, saving by grace through faith. Good news. Amen?